So as we are entering into the Advent season, um, we thought it might be fun to talk about, well, I, I posed this idea about why did the Word become flesh? Gee, and that's a great question, Bob. It is. and I, don't, I wish the catechism would have dealt with that. Well, you're in luck, Father oh, my Dave. Goodness. I don't know what you're... Have you read through the whole catechism? I'm I just have. curious. I okay. did, yeah, yeah. Because so, I taught when I was teaching foundations, that was our soul book was the catechism. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I remember... My the, catechism's funny. It is a mess. It's written and broken and... Yeah. And, yeah, it's. I need to probably get a new one. But. No, but that's fantastic. I mean, I did a similar thing. I remember it was the spring of 94 when the catechism came out, yeah. and I, I got it and I read it. Cover to cover. I mean, I was so excited about it. And I remember um, when I got to this section, and it's Catechism 456 and following, it asks the question, why did the Word become flesh? And I remember that just struck me for some reason, that I had never thought about it. I mean, we just get used to Christmas. He just did. He just yeah. did. And why wouldn't he? I mean, who doesn't want to be flesh, right? Yeah. You know? And uh, the fact that the Catechism asked that question— and gave us four answers for it um, are just beautiful and profound. And I, you know, sometimes you might hear um, people talk about the kerygma, right? You know, Pope Francis talks a lot about we have to proclaim the kerygma. Kerygma means the message. We talk about, like, what is the kernel? Like, how do you summarize the good news of Jesus Christ? And I think it can really be done in these four reasons for why did the Word become flesh. Bob, why don't we talk about these four things over the next four weeks of Advent? That's a great idea. Thanks. You are brilliant. Amazing. Yeah, you're, you're, you're incredible. That's great. Yeah, no, no matter what my dad thought about you. <laughs> That's right. Um, so the first reason, uh, the Word became flesh in order to save us by reconciling us with God. And I'm going to just read just a paragraph. I'm just going to read it because it's well, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and read 456. Can I read 456 first? Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. That's the introduction So, to yeah, it. It, the question is, the heading is, why did the Word become flesh? Which is just, I love, that's the question, let's answer it. So 456 says, with the Nicene Creed, we answer by confessing for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate to the Virgin Mary and was made man. And then the next four answers the question for us. Right. I'm having some problem with my glasses. Are you doing all right? My glasses won't go on because of the headphones. <laughs> and I feel like an idiot. <laughs> and you look like one, too. All right. The Word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with God, who loved us and sent his Son to be the expiation for our sins. The Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world, and he was revealed to take away sins. And there's a beautiful quote by St. Gregory of Nyssa, and he says this, Sick, our nature demanded to be healed, fallen to be raised up, dead to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state? cool stuff. It is cool. It makes me think of, I remember I was actually when I was walking the Camino, uh, I met a person, we just talked about Christ. She was not really a faith. She was questioning, trying to figure things out. And, and that was one of the things I, I talked about that, that he came, why did Jesus come? He came to save us. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting. She said, well, like, I don't, I don't feel like I need to be saved. Right. It was just interesting just to have that conversation that she, there was, there wasn't an awareness of, 
her being trapped, um, her needing, quote unquote, to be saved, to be helped. And it was hard to kind of bring her to that point. I mean, I, I think that's a moment of grace. It, it, this, is, this is quite the jump, but it reminds me of the scene from Superman when um, I think is it Lois Lane writes a story that we don't need a savior and Superman. Yeah, we don't need Superman. Yeah, right? yeah. Superman takes her up and says, do you hear that? I hear everything. It's people crying out for to be saved, right? Yeah. And just that that sense of it's, it's a self-awareness that coming to the recognition that I mean, I'd be lost without the Lord and and that, and that I understand humanity needs to be saved, of course, but I need that. I need to be rescued. I'm the one who's, yeah, who was wandering and, and and, yeah, you you know, my story, both of our stories, we were not horrible people ever. I mean, thank the Lord. Hmm. But even in that, it's my need to be saved because I couldn't save myself because I couldn't fix myself because I didn't have the power to be the person I wanted to be. No, no, no less the power that God wants me to be, the person I wanted to be. So Jesus comes to be able to give us that. Christianity is a very unpopular religion in the sense that it wants us to take a look at our sins. And we only do so in terms of experiencing God's mercy. I think many things in our society, in our culture, and just even in ourselves, right? Like we don't we don't want to say we need anything. You know, we are in charge of our own lives. And we want to just bury guilt. We want to rationalize it. We want to push it away. And so I would say this is a huge thing, especially when we talk about younger generations of preaching the gospel to them. In many ways, there's not a sense of a conviction of a sin in their life. Well, if you don't have sin, if you don't recognize sin in your life, you have no need for a savior. To be saved, exactly. And then God, what? Yeah, and then God just becomes this nice... I mean, he's almost like a Santa. Like, you just mm-hmm. ask him for things. He shows up on holidays. But generally speaking, you don't need it. I mean, like, just like if you are if you don't recognize you're sick, you're not going to take medicine. That's great. You know? Yeah, like, yeah, you're, not, you're not going to connect to those things. And so, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. I, I love that scripture where it says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And there's a way in which we need to be convicted of sin, not because God's trying to, like, stick our nose in it, but... You know, the the good news isn't good if the bad news isn't bad. And the bad news is that in our sins, we separated ourselves from God. Like, we were were heading to hell. Like, we were justly being damned because of the way we had treated God. And, And the story of salvation history is God lovingly coming after us and after us and after us and trying to rescue us and love us. And he speaks through prophets and through kings and through shepherds and through princesses. And I mean, just every person you can imagine. And eventually he comes as his son and we kill him. Like we, we are so as a human race, we so don't want anything to do with God that when he shows up, we kill him and we think that's going to shut him up finally. And even in that moment, that's the moment in which he brings about our salvation. Mm -hmm. And so it is really a profound and beautiful truth that as Christians, reflecting on our sin, examining our conscience, isn't, a, isn't just a, oh, I'm a horrible person. Oh, you know, I've got, you know, it's, it's this idea of, wow, look at, look at what you saved me from. Like, I yeah, want to be aware yeah. of all of my sins in the sense that I want to be so grateful to God for every single thing that he has saved me from. Yeah, it just makes me think of the, the you know, we say it every, every time we go to Mass, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Lamb of God. And in the text, and I believe it's in Hebrews, where it says the blood of goats and bulls isn't going to be able to save man. And, right. and I just reflect on the scapegoat, right? That 
that they take this unblemished lamb and they take the blood of the lamb and place it on it and and send it off, you know, symbolically into the desert as right. the take away the sins. And, and I just, I, I imagine when John the Baptist was there, he says, you know, behold the lamb of God. And everyone was probably looking for a lamb, right? Little, <laughs> right, yeah. This little lamb, but but they see a person. And, and for the Jew, there's like, they begin to connect. It's like, wait a minute. The lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. And they see this person. And it had to have caused them like, wait a minute, there's something, there's something not not right here, something going on. And then in retrospect, when they look at, you know, Jesus offers himself as expiation for our sin, then it begins to make sense for them, right? right? The Lamb of God takes away. And maybe just one other word, the, the text about um, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin is from John. And But one of the things is important is that we always know that it's the Holy Spirit convicting us and, and not the flesh, because the flesh or the evil one wants us to look at our sin and say, God's not going to forgive that. Mm. Not again. I mean, Bob, right. this is the ninth time. You've not, not again. That's not ninth time this day. Yeah. That's, yes. that's not the Holy spirit. <laughs> right. When the Holy spirit convicts us, it always leads us to Jesus and it always leads us to his mercy and it always Amen. leads us to a sense of gratitude. So sometimes it's like, how do you know if it's God or if it's a, that's how we know if, if we, because the evil one can cause us to look at our sin and, and what we feel is shame mm. or separation. And when it's the spirit, it, it's a sense of, oh my goodness, relief and and mercy and, and gratitude, you know, thank you. Yeah. St. Paul talks about how there's godly guilt, um, and guilt makes us say, I did something wrong, but then, and that brings us to conversion, but then of the devil, it's shame. And shame says, I am wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You are we a son of God. Our sin. You're a daughter of God. Right. I love how John Paul II, you are not the sum right. of your failures and your weaknesses. You are the sum of the Father's love for you. And that love was shown in, in Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I find that in my own life, that when I can honestly look at my weaknesses, at my faults, at my failings, but I'm not put into a place of cynicism or despair. I'm put into a place of, okay, Lord, like help me through this. You know, like Amen. he, you know, he's bringing us that healing, but that's the place that really, when we talk about the season of Advent, like that's a good place to put ourselves in because the world was in darkness. You know, this is why we start lighting candles. I and love what you said earlier, the world hated the light. Yeah. It preferred the darkness. Right. It still does. And it still does. Yeah. And so as we, you know, remember, you know, there's a sense in every Advent, we, we all become kind of Jewish again in that sense of like, we're waiting, we're waiting for the Savior and slowly but surely he's coming, he's coming, he's coming closer. And will we recognize him in his love? And I think part of that idea is, um, you know, I love how there's, there's, there's a penitential vibe to Lent, not to Advent as much, but we always do penance service. We always do the penance service. We wear purple. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not as strong, but, you know, yeah. Lent is definitely about that. But Advent, there's that element of it as well. Yeah. And I think just taking that time to come before the Lord and say, what, I need a Savior. Like, Jesus, I need you as my Savior, uh, recognizing that and recognizing that this is why the Word became flesh. I, I talked mm-hmm. about the cross. I love the quote of Fulton Sheen. He said that you can't separate the wood of the cradle from the wood of the cross. Mm-hmm. He became flesh knowing exactly how he was going to die. And he still, he still became flesh, you know, to, to reconcile us to God. And so let's reflect on that as we enter into this first week of Advent, as we light that first candle, uh, that our Lord, our God is coming to save us as he promised and he's doing it in the flesh. So for the first week, why did the word become flesh? The word became flesh 
in order to save us and reconcile us with God. So that's what we reflect on this week of Advent. The Word became, so number 458 says, The Word became flesh so that thus we might know God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. Do you know what that's where that's from, Bob? Do you know where that Bible scripture is from? Oh, let me think. It's one of the Gospels. Yes, uh, yes. It, it is, of course, John 3.16, the most. Yeah. You know, what's beautiful about John 3.16 is most people would say, if you could summarize scripture in one verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that through him we might not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, yeah. So to, again, to answer the question, why did the word become flesh? The word became flesh to reveal the love of God. I was always touched by a father, Renero Cantalamesa, who were to say, uh, not only if you were to narrow the scriptures into one verse, but into three words, he would say that God is love, hmm. that, that ultimately the revelation of Christ was a God who loves. And and I think it's important that, that we speak to that, that we live in a culture and age that that you see bumper stickers that say love is love, all love is the same. And, and that simply isn't true. You know, I've, I've had too many kids in my office over the years that have been forced to do things, quote unquote, out of love, if you love me, or, or things that have been said to them about love that, that simply wasn't love. And that's why the starting point for us in the conversation of love is God. For God so loved the world, God is love. And that's the starting point. So if we want to understand what love is, then then we look at Jesus and, and what he's done for us and how he's revealed himself to us, that that this is the revelation of Jesus, is that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, that, that the Son perfectly loved us. The Spirit is is that manifestation of the love between the Father and the Son. Um, and it's it's funny, I, the, the book that I did on freedom, I ended on just this, I, this understanding of coming to know the love of God and, and that we're free to be able to live in his love. And I remember a student came into my office and she had read the book and she was, that's it. I mean, that's kind of the big crescendo that, that it's like, sorry. I mean, that's, that's, that's all I got. But, yep. but the thing, I, I, I tell this story a lot. I tell a story when I'm, I'm speaking about this, about my niece who was said she loved me and it was just kind of charming. And a lot of the people go, Oh, that's so sweet. And, and I say, you know, the only reason I tell that story is because it always gets that reaction. It's like, Oh, that's so nice. I said, I've told, you know, a million people in talks that God loves them. And nobody has ever said, oh, that's so sweet. And, mm-hmm. and I think, I think we've, we've, we grow accustomed to it. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. What next? But right. I, I mean, the, the spiritual life, I'm, I'm doing the, the Marian consecration, de Montfort's de consecration. We're now in the last part of it, and it's talking about Jesus. And, and just that, that today's thing was about we are loved. God, Jesus reveals the love of God. And and we, we ought not move away from that. We ought not say, okay, I've heard that. What's next? That is really the starting point. It's, it's, it's the middle, it's the center, and it's the end, this revelation of God's love for us. I would recommend a wonderful book, if you haven't read it, called C- by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. And what he does in this book is he looks at the different ways the Greek language uses the word love. They've got four different words for love, which I think is awesome. I wish we had more words for love (laughs) in the English language, right? Uh, You know, I would say things like, I love bacon and I love my wife. 
And I mean very different things, even though I'm using the same word. And Father Dave, you alluded this, you know, to this, like people who are doing things because they love. Well, we mean different things. And the highest form of love is the word that Jesus uses. It's agape. And that's a total self-gift, self-sacrificial love, which isn't based on emotion. I mean, it is a, it is, mm. you know, it is charity. It is gift of self. And so when we talk about God being love, that's the fullness of love. You know, there's other words for love. Uh, eros is the love between a husband and wife. That's where we get the word erotic from. Philios is a love between brothers. That's actually, you know, that we call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love because that's that kind of love. Mm. You know, I, I think of um, at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me? And he's using the word agape. Peter replies by, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. And he's using the word philios because he realizes that he didn't sacrifice his life for Jesus. And that third time Jesus said, do you philios me? And he was offended, like, come on, you know that I do. Um, so the love that God is calling us to, as you're saying, love, love, is, you know, people say love is love. It's like, well, yeah, because we only have one dumb word for it in our English language, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. but philios and eros is not agape. And the love that God has for us trumps everything. And so when, when the catechism is talking about this idea of why did the word become flesh, it's not that the Lord, not that we would know that God is affectionate towards us, you know, that God cares for us, which are other ways that we might use the word love, but that God is willing to sacrifice himself for us. I, I love what Fulton Sheen said, and I've quoted it before on this podcast. You can't separate the wood of the cradle from the wood of the cross. Like, you know, greater love has none than this, Jesus says in John 15, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. Do what I command. And Romans 5, 8, that God proves his love, his agape for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the heart of that really is in the incarnation. You know, you know when the word became flesh, and dwelt among us that beautiful scene in the manger he knew exactly how he was also going yeah. to die you know that horrific scene on the cross and the first reason as we talked about last episode was to be reconciled to god that was kind of a what you know like why did the word become flesh well the the what was so we could get reconciled to god but the heart of the why why did he reconcile us is because he loves us so much he didn't do it like, okay, you darn kids, I'll come down there just once and I'm going to fix your problem, but you better straighten up and fly right. It was a sign of God's love for us, that he would give everything for us. And he did, you know, God so loved the world. He gave, you know, the father gave his only beloved son. I mean, I know as a dad, I can't imagine that kind of sacrifice. You know, I would do anything for my kids and I would do anything to protect my kids. And the fact that the Father loves us so much, he gives us his most cherished thing possible, which is his own son, um, it's just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing that he would do that. Yeah, amen. Amen. And that's really, obviously, we're moving towards that, that we chose to do these during the Advent season and invite us to just reflect a little bit about what we're coming to and what we're moving towards. Even that, the Oh, yeah, that's right. Advent again, Christmas again. We'd go through this every year, but maybe through just taking some time to be quiet and still and to be prayer, prayerful during this week, 
we can reflect just on that reality that the word becomes flesh. Christmas is ultimately the beginning of a profound uh, revelation and love story about a God who wants to make it known to us. And he's, this is how it begins, right? Uh, with a child. Yeah. So that's great. Amen. And can I say one more thing? Because it's a Franciscan connection. Uh-huh. Uh, Blessed Dun Scotus, who uh, is a great Franciscan theologian, um, he actually argued that the incarnation was a bigger deal than the Paschal mystery. Um, because, you know, Francis obviously had a love for the incarnation, a love for the baby Jesus. But it and, was his favorite. It was his, for Francis. So it's, it's the most essential feast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's because there is that connection to the cross. Like yeah. as we celebrate the baby Jesus, again, the wood of the cradle, the wood of the cross, he gave us, God became flesh and dwelt among us to show us his love. And what is the high point of love that you would give your life for the friends and God calls his friends through the love that he shows mm-hmm. on the cross, but also in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, and what Christmas is, is the Lord coming in the flesh, because the only thing he couldn't do in the flesh, the only thing he couldn't do before he was in the flesh was actually die. Yeah. And that's why he became flesh. And we've been talking about the four reasons for the, rec- you know, for the, why the word became flesh. The first was to be reconciled to God. And that nice required... Segue. That required his death. Thank you. I'm Nailed a professional. Yep. Uh, the second is that we would know his love. You know, becoming in flesh really was an opportunity to experience his love in a deep way, as, you know, St. Paul said, that, or as Jesus himself said in John 15, greater love has none than this, that one would give his life for his friends. Well, he couldn't give his life if he wasn't in the flesh, right, right, right. you know, in that sense. And so he became flesh so he could show us the greatest act of love. Mm. And then the third reason that we're talking about today is that he would become a model of holiness. Number 459, if you're following in oh, your catechism. Oh, you. Yes, that's true. Uh, and let me read it for you. The word became flesh to be our model of holiness. The scriptures are quoted here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. On the mountain of the transfiguration, the Father commands, listen to him. Jesus is the model for the Beatitudes and the norm of the new law Love one another as I have loved you. This love implies an effective offering of oneself after his example. And, you know, the beauty of, um, the beauty of this idea to be our model of holiness, really, we didn't have an image of what it meant to be holy before Jesus. Uh, it, you know, like, it, I think there's a beautiful humanity in the Old Testament when you look at some of the major figures in the Old Testament. You know, they didn't, you know, they didn't whitewash him. You know, like Moses was amazing. Oh, but then there was that moment at Meribah and Massa, you know, where he took mm-hmm. credit for God's work. And, you know, King David was awesome. Oh, there was that Bathsheba moment, right? You know, like it's kind of a beautiful thing that the writers of Scripture never felt like they needed to make anybody, quote unquote, perfect. There's many virtues with which to emulate. But in terms of this idea of what does it truly mean to be holy, we certainly had ideas and we had teachings and we had prophecies. But the word becomes flesh so that we have a model of holiness. And that includes our Blessed Mother because she was preserved beforehand through what Christ would do later so that Christ could come into the world. And so, you know, it's that I feel like every seven or eight years, you know, what, you know, WWJD comes back, you know, what would Jesus do? And it's kind of silly at times, but there's a profound truth to it, which is to say, as a Christian, we now don't necessarily just look at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But it's also asking how holiness is not just a don't do this, 
but it's a yes. It's a, well, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? And he becomes the way, the truth, and the mm-hmm. life, the mm-hmm. very model by which we can now say, I'm not a disciple of the law as it would be in the Old Testament. I'm a disciple of a person. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I'm trying to do everything as he would do it, or at least certainly as he calls me to do it. Yeah, I like the just the wording that, that he uses, is the catechism states, is that he becomes a model of holiness for us. The, the word itself means to be set apart. So the reality, and it's one of the, I think one of the great graces of the Second Vatican Council is this restoration of the universal call to holiness, mm-hmm. that in one sense there was maybe before that, that the priests and the, and the religious, okay, they were called to be holy, but we're just kind of the ladies, just kind of called to do what right. they're supposed to, be obedient, pay, those kinds of things. Have kids that become priests. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but, but this call that the Lord has given to each one of us to ultimately be holy, that we're set apart. But when, what I love about this is Jesus becomes that place that we look to for it. We obviously have saints who, who help model that for us, but ultimately he is the way, he is the truth. Yes. He, so Jesus isn't just a model, he is the model, he's the primordial model of what it is to be holy. But I think when we're, if we're honest, we often have this image of holiness of something something other than us. I remember one time I was doing a, a men's retreat in Columbus, and I asked, and I would often do something like this, whoever feels holy, go ahead and stand up. Well, nobody nobody will ever stand up because it's like, it's arrogant or you're holy. But this one gentleman, this one particular time stood up, which totally threw me off because nobody ever stands up. And I, let's try to make my point. So at the end of it, he asked me, he comes up to me, he goes, what did you say? And I said, well, whoever's holy, stand up. He goes, oh, I thought you said whoever's elderly, stand up. It's like, no, that's not what I said. But but again, yeah. the, the the thing that's important for us is is that, you know, we've got that image in Isaiah where they look upon the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now, we have been baptized into Christ, right? And in, in, in that, we are called to and supposed to be holy, right? Mm. A danger, though, is that when we think of holiness, we think of somebody else, right? Holiness is that person. And and I think part of the conversion and the grace that we need to is is to recognize that you, by the fact that you're baptized, you have been set apart, and you have been set apart for a purpose, and that is a life of holiness. And we need to, I think, begin to own that, Mm. right? It's not just somebody else. It's not just the guy down the street. It's not just, it's it's all of us. Each one of us are called to that. And that idea that now, you know, uh, it's the new law of grace, right? It's not righteousness based on the law. It's righteousness based on grace. And this idea that, you know, holiness isn't just a don't do something. It's not just about the absence of sin, but it's the presence of God in your life, the presence of grace in your right. life. And I think if we see, if we define holiness by what it isn't, which is I don't sin, then I would never stand up and say I'm holy. Yeah, no, no, no. I know some virtuous pagans, right? Yeah, some right. people who have, don't believe in God, but they live, quote unquote, a virtuous life. But I wouldn't say that that they holiness is not an attribute that I would assign to them. Right. And so if if I understand holiness to say I'm the presence of God is in your life, you're living in the presence of God, you're trying to live in the presence of God, yes. Yeah, I'm I'm holy. Praise God. And if I didn't think so, I wouldn't receive the Eucharist. <laughs> yeah. You know, like because I know I'm not worthy, but that's not the point. The point is I'm really trying to follow Jesus and it's through his grace that I'm saved and I'm living out the fruits of that in my life. I was reflecting on this and, and one of the things that really strikes me about the model of holiness that Jesus brings. Um, you know, somebody once said, before Jesus, there wouldn't be a Mother Teresa. You know, right? Like, it, he was a man of the Beatitudes. It wasn't, he didn't replace the Ten Commandments with the Beatitudes. Sometimes people mm-hmm. go that direction. It's actually looking at the Ten Commandments through the Beatitudes. And, and the Catechism does this really beautifully. And right before it goes through 
the Ten Commandments, it looks at the Beatitudes, because it is about that, yes. And it talks about the evangelical councils, uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And certainly you see the seeds of those in the Old Testament, but really in a profound way, and, and not just Jesus, I would say the Holy Family, this idea of an embrace of poverty, um, you know, an embrace of chastity, uh, obedience, right? Obedience to the Father, obedience to the will of God. And even though that's something, for example, Father Dave, that you've taken vows for, you know, the three knots on your, is it a cincture? Cord. Your cord. Um, you're the three knots on your cord. I let Father Stan used to say, what did he used to say? Uh, no, no money, money no, no honey. honey. You can do and, what you're told. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he said, and a boss. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> what he said. Um, but actually, it's something that all of us are called to live in different ways. You know, I as a, well, a deacon, to be sure, but a married deacon with a family, my vow of poverty is going to look differently. Uh, it means I'm not going to just turn away all money, but it does mean I should be detached from money, mm-hmm. and I'm careful on the way I use money. Uh, I am married. But there's still chastity in that. There's still a virtue in that, the way I approach my wife, the way I'm looking at anything else, and obedience, you know? I mean, not just as a deacon with my own bishop, but even just to the church, to the faith, um, you know, to what the Lord is calling me to do. And, you know, I, I often come back to those three councils and ask, Lord, how can I do that more? And even as we come up to Christmas, I, I think of that as a beautiful— Im- I mean, all three of them, right? Poverty, chastity, obedience. Like, it's all there— uh, at the nativity, you mm-hmm. know, where Mary was ever virgin before, during, and after. Uh, St. Joseph accepted Mary's virginity and, and protected it. Obviously, Jesus consecrated to the Lord. Uh, they're in poverty. They're going to end up in Nazareth. They didn't have to end up in Nazareth. Joseph probably was a pretty good carpenter. He could have gone to a major city, but they went to a boondocks place to try to protect Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, from Herod and the others. And then all of them obedience. The angel of the Lord appears to Mary. Uh, the angel appears to Joseph and Jesus himself, even in the garden, not my will, but yours be mm-hmm. done. So I think there's, I like that as a thought of what's the yes? How am I, how am I saying yes? And of course the world's, the world's temptation is, you know, money, sex, and power. Mm-hmm. And the image of Jesus is the exact opposite of that. And that's a model. Yeah. Amen. amen. Yeah. I think that. What was yeah. that like taking those vows for you though? I mean, was that. Was that a big deal, or was that yeah, like it's, you were it's already? Interesting. It's interesting, and in, in, in maybe an analogy that is is I think helpful is that you know in the same. So the day I take my vows, I hopefully I'm living more obediently than I was then. I'm living more chaste than I was then. Yeah. I'm living more poorly than I was then. So it's not just you take the vows and it magically happens. And and I would say the same in marriage is right. is that you know the day after you get married you're coming to understand what it is to be married, what it is to be in a marital covenant relationship with another person. And I would say the same thing with holiness is mm-hmm. that, is that hopefully I'm, there's a deeper level of holiness in my life now than there was. So as I grow, as I've grown in the vows, as I've, you know, when I take the vows, I mean, yes, I take them out. I know basically what it means, but I could speak much differently about what it meant now, right? you know, 30 years later than it did when I was a 20 some year old kid. Right. So in, in, in a, again, the same with, with holiness is that I am living, I am working towards a life of holiness. But again, I would just stress again that there has to be this moment that we as individuals, we claim that we say, you know, that, that this is what I desire. I, I desire to be holy. I desire to be set apart. I desire to live. And ultimately it says more about the Lord. I think we do some dangers as one that we compare. It's not, I'm as holy. I'm not as holy as that person. Well, mm. 
you just pray that the Lord does in them what the Lord is going to do. What is he asking of you, right? So holiness says more about my relationship with God and his relationship with me and ultimately about his work in me. I can't be holy just by making up my mind to be holy. It's not merely a decision, but it is the saying yes to the grace and the transformation that God wants to pour out on us. And, and, and we've all experienced that. You know, we've experienced people that we've met that there's just something about them, right? Yeah. And it, regardless, I th- in my own life, I think of a friend of my mom and dad's. I think, I think he had maybe a, he was a Native American, maybe a fifth grade, eighth grade education or something like that. One of the holiest, most beautiful people I know. So what, what makes holiness? It makes, it's not about education. It's not about merely knowledge, as you stated. It's not just about not doing things. It's about relationship with God and letting that transform us and in us become more like the Beatitudes of us. Amen. Amen. Well, this week we are concluding our four-part series on why did the Word become flesh just in time for the Christmas celebration. And our final reason, so just to recap, the first reason was that we'd be reconciled to God. The second, that we would know God's love. The third is that we would have a model of holiness. And, you know, I think if there were only three reasons for the incarnation, we wouldn't be complaining at this point. I mean, like if those, there was only one, we would be okay. You know, <laughs> I know, right? let's be honest. Like, even if he reconciled us, but he was still mad, like, that's still okay. You know, like, but wow, this last reason totally blows my mind. Father Dave, would you lead us in this one? Well, first off, yeah, that's right. The, the reason we talked about doing this was just kind of, an opportunity for us to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And, yeah. and, and that's, you know, it's one of those things that we take for granted. It's like, well, yeah, he came. Well, well why did he come? Right. Yeah. Right. Why did he come? And this is, and, and, and I'll get to the fourth one, but this is one of the, you know, there, there are individuals out there who, who don't appreciate the second Vatican council. And I'm just really grateful for the second Vatican council, but that, there's a similarity here in that. Why did they feel the need to have a second Vatican council? Why did they call that council? because the world needed Christ, hmm. right? The, the the Holy Father and the Church Fathers were looking around saying, the world needs Christ. And that is really the focus of the Second Vatican Council is to bring Christ to the world. So fundamentally, why did Christ come to the world at the beginning through the incarnation, the three that you mentioned? And the last one, and again, we're taking a look at the Catechism, and this is Catechism number 480. And it said the word... 460. Excuse me, thanks. I don't have my glasses on. Mm-hmm. It says, the word became flesh uh, to make us partakers of the divine nature, for this is why the word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become the Son of God. And then it goes on to say, for the Son of God became man so that we might become God. That was a quote from St. Athanasius. Think about that. It's huge. Yeah. I'm going to read this again because there's a way you could hear it this. It sounds heretical. And I was just going to say, and if you actually Google, Google um, man becoming God, you know what you get? Uh-uh. The Avatar? First, no, Mormons. Really? Yeah, the first, they're all about the... the this, They'd prefer to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, the the, the divinization of man, which is, you know, that that's why. Why did it become so that man could be divinized? Hmm. But it's interesting that the Mormon churches, the Church of Latter-day Saints have really gone into that. So... yeah. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. And that's like, you read that, it's like, yes, baby, that's what I'm going for. <laughs> right. And, yet, and it's, it's interesting that, that this is the purpose, is that, that God 
and this is why God comes to us, Jesus comes to us, and he's both God and he's both man, and that he he takes on, in, in the second person, fully full humanity, right? Yeah. I love what the Fourth Vatican Council is that Whatever it is to you be man. You say the Fourth Vatican Council? The Fourth Lateran Council. Oh, good, yes. Yeah, whatever it is to, to become human, that's what Jesus was. Mm. And there's a way sometimes that we apologize for being human. Being human is a wonderful, good, holy, amazing thing, mm. because that's what we are. But in the God-man, he... he divinizes, he makes divine humanity in, in his person. And then, as, as, as the catechism says, we become partakers of that. Yeah, And you're right, it almost sounds scandalous or heretical to say that we become God, but but it obviously it says that, that we become partakers, we become participation yes. in, in that divinization of man. And that is the nature of conversion and holiness and the sacraments, is to divinize us, to make us more like God. I had a student one time, and I assigned them the four reasons for the incarnation, just wanting to give them a, a simple outline for a talk. And they did really good, and they got to the fourth one, Let's and they started talking about, well, they actually said how we are partakers in the divine image and talked a bit about that and then closed the talk. And I said at the end, um, you got the last point wrong. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you're partakers of the divine nature. And his eyes got really big, and he's like, what? And I said, you partake in the divine nature. And then I gave that Athanasius quote, for the Son of God became man so we might become God. And he was like, and he said to me, I don't think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the catechism is not right. Well, I didn't, I didn't like open it. I mean, I just said that statement and he was, clearly he didn't prep the talk yeah. very well, but I totally appreciated the scandal of it, right? You know, like this is, this is more than just being fixed um, you know, this is more than just, okay, you guys screwed up, but I'll patch you up and you'll be better. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is when we talk about and rebirth. Can I just jump on that? Yeah, yeah please, th- go th- for th- it. That's really important. That God doesn't become, Jesus doesn't take flesh just to make us better. Yes. Right? A book could make us better. Yeah. He does it to make us holy, to make us, yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah. And even, um, oh, I got to find it. In um, when, we, when the catechism talks about baptism um, or in grace, yeah, here we go. So, um, in 1999, oh, that was also a really good print song. The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes of to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. It is the sanctifying or, check this out, deifying grace received in baptism. And so when you come down to our baptism and we talk about being adopted as sons and daughters of God— the adoption of God is more than just, you know, divine paperwork, right? It is in our, in baptism, we are, we are reborn. Like we are actually reborn. It's as if God infuses his spiritual DNA into our souls. And it's a sanctifying grace, but it's a deifying grace that we actually partake in the very life of God. And this is how we enter into all sacramental life. This is how, how can we receive the Eucharist, for example? Like, how could one possibly receive God, you know, body, blood, soul, and divinity, if we were not already having that deifying grace into our lives? And that's why the, the, the reference to the Eucharist is so important, is that because when we take on Jesus, when we take in the Eucharist, it doesn't become us, we become it. Yeah. I, I think I probably shared the story on the podcast before, but a friend of mine who's a nun did that uh, genealogy thing and she found out she's 1% Jewish 
And she said, why, why am I 1% Jewish? Because I go to mass every day and I receive the Eucharist, right? <laughs> cool. So that, that, that transformation that takes place. Yeah. But one of the images that I, I read, and see if I can remember to and actually articulate it the way the author did, but this idea of partaking in the divine, that, that we are deified. And again, if you Google that, it, Right. It just things like, because yeah, it's so we, unusual. We don't become like the Alpha and Omega. You know, we're not saying we become God no, in that sense. No, but but it's a, the image that the author used was one of um, taking a frying pan and putting on a fl- putting it on the pan and, and on the stove and then turning on the flame. That flame by its nature is the heat, but the, fl- the, the pan partakes in that heat mm. and becomes quote unquote one with it, it becomes the source, but it right. comes the source comes from somewhere else. It's a partaking of the fire, it's a partaking yes. of that, but it's not and that was his image that he used is that again, for analogy, right? Right, right, right. Is that we are partakers of, of the divine nature because God is infused in us and God yeah. is baptized and yeah. bred in a relationship with and us. And we move from being creations to being I mean that's what it means to be sons and daughters, yeah. to be heirs and the first uh, installment of our heritage as St. Paul talks about, is the Holy Spirit. You know, that we are we are given the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, it's that sanctifying and that deifying grace. If you have any friends who are in Eastern Rite traditions, you know, the Eastern Church is a lot more vocal and talks a lot more about this idea about yeah. divinization. The Western Church, we're, we're focused on salvation more than divinization. And I would say for those of us more into Latin Rite, it is like unusual phrases. Like, again, you almost be like, is that... Can I say that? No, seriously, you know? stand up. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Stand up and say that, and they're like, all right, this dude's got an ego problem, right? <laughs> right. But, but, it is the, but it also speaks of the nature of, of, of the sacraments and of grace that it, it literally transforms me. And this is, this is self-evident. We know this, right? But we are eternal now. Yeah. You know, with, with God pouring his grace into us by the eternal soul within each one of us, we participate in the eternal that is God. For this is why the Word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. And as, and as John says in uh, his first letter, chapter 3, um, see what love the Father has lavished upon us by letting us be called children of God. Yeah, that is For what that we are. is what we are. It's not, not just a title. Best, not it's not just a cutesy title. Oh, you're a son of God. You're a do- oh, you're a prince. You're a princess. Right? Sometimes That's what we can do that. Us, yeah. It's like no, actually, this is the reality of it. And so, as we celebrate Christmas and as we celebrate the incarnation, I mean, I think it's again this reason just is the mind blowing. You did what? Like you didn't just come to save us. You came to make us like yourself. Like you came to invite us into your family. You came to transform us into a rebirth that we are in you, a new creation. And the new creation isn't just a reset of the old creation. It is a new life. It is a new identity. It's a new foundation. It's a new grace that changes everything. And again, it, it speaks to the Lord's generosity, right? Yeah. Is that he's going to share his very self, his very nature with us, which is again, we want to hold back and just in case or have something up above. But he, this is so, such Franciscan theology, he totally empties himself yes. and pours himself out for us and then divi- invites us into that relationship. So Amen. this weekend, as you look upon that little baby in a cradle, uh, think of these reasons. You know, it's, not, it's more than just, oh, that's so cute and isn't God wonderful. Right. It's about our salvation. It's about knowing the depths of his love. It's about seeing 
in that life, the very model of what it means to be holy, and it is about God becoming flesh, becoming human, so that humanity might become God's, as the Catechism says, in Amen. the sense of partaking in the fullness of his divine life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray during this uh, last week of Advent as we draw closer to Christmas that our hearts and our minds would be turned towards you, that we would fully uh, come to understand more fully, more and more purely uh, why you became flesh. And we thank you, Lord, that you've done that. Lord, pride blessings upon you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Happy Advent. Merry Christmas, everyone listening. Thank you so much. You're in our prayers. Merry Christmas.